Well, good morning, uh, Village, and uh, anybody that is uh, watching online this morning, uh, it's good to have you joining us. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I have found uh, myself using a word a lot lately, uh, one that I at least didn't notice that I use as much, uh, whether I did or not, uh, and that is the word hope. Um, I find it creeping into all kinds of sentences, things like, I, I hope my friends and family uh, aren't affected by the coronavirus. Uh, man, I really hope this quarantine ends uh, sometime before May. Um, I, I really hope our summer plans uh, that we had for holidays and things like that uh, aren't completely disrupted um, by this pandemic. Uh, I hope that there's toilet paper left uh, when I go to the, to the shop. Um, it seems like uh, all of us are, are using the word hope a lot more. Um, and that's because we are hardwired for it. We're hardwired for hope, and it's what I want to talk to us about this morning. As we've moved through the book of 1 Corinthians, we now find ourselves coming to the close, uh, and Paul is going to remind us this morning of the ultimate basis and foundation for our hope. Um, Paul Tripp, who's a counselor and uh, an author, uh, on his reflecting on hope, he says this. He says, we don't live by instinct. Every decision you make, every choice that you make, um, every response that you have to the situations and the relationships of your life is fueled by and motivated by hope. And when you think about that, the happiest moments of your life are hope-filled moments. The saddest moments of your life are moments where hope has uh, been lost. Um, the things that we are, are, uh, we're, we're hoping for aren't materializing. They don't come to be. We are always looking for hope. We are always attaching our heart to hope, looking for things to place our hope in. And it's interesting during this global pandemic uh, that we all find ourselves in the middle of, the world's attention captivated by uncertainty in many ways, uncertainty of uh, business, um, uncertainty of financial markets, uncertainty of our own health, our health systems, uh, uncertainty of the future. How much of the language during this time is language of hope? Um, how much of that language bubbles to the surface, um, often going unseen? Even on social media, a lot of times there are, are things that are being um, shared, and they're shared as, uh, as signs of hope, or uh, we haven't lost hope in humanity, and here's a bright spot in the middle of all of this. These, these moments of hope that we are sharing with each other, or on the news, uh, watching the news, new data that comes in is hopeful data. It's data that allows us to be more hopeful for the future, a hopefulness of what we uh, imagine our future to be. Again, Paul Tripp says this. He says, hope is always two things when we think about hope. One, it's always an object. And so it's a person. It's a relationship. It's, it's, there's an object of our hope. We're placing our hope in or on an object. Um, it might even be a, a holiday. Um, and, and then the second thing, it's, a, it's an object, but it's also an expectation. We are hoping in something, and we are asking that something to deliver something to us and for us. Um, uh, I, as, as, as you know, it's no secret, a lot of, I suffer a lot during kind of the darkness of, of winter here and uh, catch myself maybe daydreaming about brighter days, maybe about a holiday that you're going to go on. And you th you're thinking about that future holiday, um, maybe in the summer or, or relief in the winter or something like that. And you're hoping that it provides some kind of relief of kind of winter blues. We might place... Uh, our hope in the idea of a spouse. If you're single, 
um, and we, we think about our future, and that future might, um, we hope for a spouse to be a part of that, someone that can provide love and companionship, uh, a partner to, be, uh, to, to, to do life with. We might hope for a certain kind of job or a position within our career, um, and we, we hope for that because of what it delivers to us, the expectations that we have for that that would provide a certain level of uh, financial security to us or would provide a certain uh, level of lifestyle. Now, there's nothing wrong with all those things. There's nothing wrong with going on holiday and looking forward to that. There's nothing long, uh, wrong with, with wanting a spouse. There's nothing wrong with wanting um, job security. There's nothing wrong with all those things. In fact, we can receive those things with gladness uh, in the right way as a gift from God. The problem is when we look to those things, we look to anything um, for our hope. We are placing our, our ultimate hope, our future hope in something, and we're asking that to deliver something for us. And it's a problem. Um, why is that a problem? Well, this pandemic is exposing exactly the reason why. Um, placing our hope in unfounded places is a problem because all of those things that we've mentioned, all of the objects of our hope can be lost and they can be lost in an instant. Our future plans, think about all the plans that you had for your life um, for this month and the next month, maybe the summer, maybe the autumn. All of those, some of those are gone for, for certain. Some of those things have been canceled. Uh, the things we derive pleasure from, enjoyment from, um, uh, there's uncertainty now built into those things. We're not sure um, about our jobs. We're not maybe sure about our plans. Um, we're kind of stuck in this limbo. Even our loved ones. Um, one thing that this pandemic has done is expose our humanity. It's reminded us of our frailty. Um, even people that we love, that we care for, um, can be taken away from us. And eventually the reality is all of us will at some point die. It's causing us to face our mortality and realizing that even the people that we place our hope in um, will eventually die. Our job, our finances, those things are not as secure as, they, as we thought they once were. And so this begs the question then, doesn't it? When life is hard, when life is confusing, when it's unexpected circumstances uh, that we find ourselves in, whether that be loss, whether that be death, whatever it may be, the question that this all begs then is, where do you run for hope? To what will you try to put your uh, security in? From what will you try to find comfort in? And that's the question I want us to think about this morning, that I want us to answer. Where or what is your functional hope in? Just take a moment to think about that. Maybe I hope that we have thought about that even over uh, the last few weeks as we've kind of been stripped away of a lot of the things that we probably have looked forward to or, or had some sense of hope, hopefulness in. Maybe you're feeling vulnerable this morning. Um, maybe you're even feeling that sense of kind of hopelessness. Um, but I want to encourage you this morning because that can actually be a good thing. Um, because the door to hope is hopelessness. The only way to find hope um, that, that is secure, the only way that we can actually find the hope that will last is to give up on all the places of our misplaced hope. To finally stop looking to the things that ultimately will fail us or can be taken away in a moment. Um, to place our hope in. Because for hope to be true hope, for it to be a, a reliable hope that we can, that we can um, place our future in, it actually has to deliver. It must be trustworthy. It actually has to fix what is broken. True hope must address our biggest, our darkest 
fears, our, our biggest and darkest dilemmas uh, of our life. And one good thing about the pandemic is it is exposing how fragile, how faulty the objects of our hope are. And it's that feeling of loss. It's that feeling of grief uh, that we're all experiencing, myself included, um, trying to make sense of the feelings that we have in these moments, these moments of kind of loss, of grieving things. Um, it is a feeling of hopelessness in many ways. The things that we were hoping might deliver uh, a future security, the things that we were hoping might uh, deliver some joy or uh, might relieve us from um, some pain have all been exposed for what they are. They're, they're not ultimately going to deliver uh, the hope that we, that we are looking for. And so today I want us to see, I want us to know, I want us to remember. Most importantly, I want us to believe that hope isn't a place, hope isn't a situation, hope isn't an experience, hope isn't um, uh, uh, any of the things that we run to uh, to find our, our identity in, our security in. Ultimately, we're going to see this morning that hope is a person. Uh, and that person, his name is Jesus. And so how is Jesus our only hope in life and death? Um, for, for those of us that are Christians, that's what we believe. Our only hope in life and in death resides in the hope of Jesus. And, and more specifically, the hope of the gospel. That is what Jesus has actually done through his life, death, and resurrection. Um, and so that brings us to our text this morning. And so uh, let me just read the first couple verses again for us. This is 1 Corinthians 15, um, the very beginning of the chapter. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He wants to remind them of the gospel. That, that word just basically means good news, right? And it's something that we see three things in that text. We receive it, first of all, so it's the gift that we received. We can't earn it, um, our salvation, uh, the good news of what Jesus has done. Um, the reason Jesus had to, to die in the first place was because he was the only one righteous. Um, you and I um, have lived a sinful life. We have lived a life apart from God. Jesus never did that. Um, and so we can't earn it. We have to receive what Jesus has done. And because it's a gift from God, it's available to all, to all who will receive it. Um, it is a gift of God, even the power of salvation. He says also we're to stand on it. This is the firm foundation um, that we are to build our life on, that we are to stand upon. Um, the, the other things that we've mentioned so far are all good things. Um, having a, a good job, producing good things in the world, being a productive member of society is good. Having um, a partner and a spouse, if, if that's what God has called us to, is a good thing. Having a family is a good thing. But none of those things are a firm enough foundation to build a life upon. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ um, is a firm enough foundation on which we, we stand. And then he also says it's by which we are saved. And it's actually, he says, to those of us that are, are Christians, it's the thing by which we are being saved. Um, it's the only thing that can save us. It's the only thing um, that if we place our trust and our hope in will actually deliver. It will actually um, bring us all of the things that we are ultimately hoping for, even the things our soul is hoping for that we, we might not even realize consciously at times. Only the gospel is sufficient enough uh, to deliver those things to us. And he says we hold fast to that, that we don't believe in vain. Um, there's, there's a type of belief that masquerades as belief, but it's not actual faith. It's not a saving faith. And so he, he um, uh, Paul reminds the church to hold fast to this hope. Hold fast to the gospel. 
And so what is this gospel? Well, in verse 3, he says, For I delivered it to you, the gospel, the good news, as of first importance. It's the thing that's the most important. It's of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. This is the good news. It's of first importance. It's the basis for everything else. If this is true, if the resurrection, um, which is his, his focal point in this chapter, if the resurrection is true, it's the basis for all of our hope. If it isn't true, ultimately then there's no hope at all. There's no hope beyond the things that we currently look to. And when those things fail us, our hope fails with it. When those things are taken away, so is our hope. And we're left with this nagging sense of, is this all there is? This hopelessness that all of us, to some degree, are probably experiencing um, all around the world today. This sense of uh, our safety nets being removed. They're not actually there at all. And notice what he says. For I deliver to you... What I also received of first importance, that Christ, Christ, that is the Messiah, that is Jesus. Um, he is the basis of our hope. Jesus comes, takes on the form of a man. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, right? The incarnation. Comes as a man. Lives a life uh, that you and I couldn't live, that we didn't live. A life of perfect sinlessness before God. Um, he comes in that way. And then it says, it's, it's Christ, but Christ died. And why did Jesus die then? Well, he tells us he died for our sins. And notice it's according with the scripture, in accordance with the scriptures. Jesus comes fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law. That is that we live perfectly, that we live sinlessly. It's the reason why um, from the very beginning of the garden, uh, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebel against God, they sin against God. God creates this perfect environment for them to live in, in perfect harmony. All hope fulfilled. No death, no disease, no viruses. Um, perfect communion with God. And yet Satan comes in, um, draws us as humans away. Adam being a, a head representative for all of humanity. And we decide to do things our own way. And because of our unrighteousness, sin enters the world. So Jesus comes, lives the life that you and I were supposed to live, a perfect life. He fulfills all the righteous requirements of the law. And because he's completely righteous, it gives us that, he, he's able then to give us that righteousness. You and I don't have that righteousness of our own. Um, I can't give somebody righteousness because uh, I am unrighteous, just as you are. We are all sinful people, the, the scripture tells us. And, and that's just revealed, isn't it? We... I don't think that's hard to understand. Um, we just turn on the news and we see how we as humans treat each other. Um, all of us um, are, are sinful. We're born with sinful hearts. So Jesus comes completely righteous. He lives that life and he's able then to die as our substitute. And we see this, it says, in accordance with the scriptures. This is what the Old Testament has been saying all from the beginning. We see this even in, in things like the Passover lamb um, that we, we celebrate uh, 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 even around Easter time, isn't it? Um, a lamb that was slain, a perfect spotless lamb that they would slay on behalf of um, them, placing the sins on this kind of scapegoat, as it were, and um, the blood of the lamb being shed to cover their sins. Jesus comes then as that sacrificial lamb um, for humans. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. We receive all the righteousness of Christ he takes on all of our sinfulness, all of our unrighteousness, goes to the cross and pays the penalty for our sin. 
This is the gospel. This is what's of, of first importance. But then it says not only did he die, but he was buried. Um, he really died. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, a performance art piece. He didn't just kind of swoon and pass out for a while. He was buried and in the tomb for three days. And then he was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, in accordance with the scriptures, meaning this has always been God's plan. It's always been throughout the entire Old Testament. It's been foretelling of a Messiah that would come and that would, he would set his people free, that he would be the hope of the world. And his, his being raised from the dead is the proof then. It's the proof. All these scriptures were leading up to prophesying that this would happen. And so Paul is appealing to their faith in their ancient text, um, in the scriptures. This is exactly what God has been telling us would happen the whole time. And here's the proof that it's happened. And then if, if we see really through verses 5 through 11, um, we read Jesus, uh, these eyewitnesses. He, he comes to Cephas, that's Peter, the other 12 disciples. He appears to more than 500 people at one time. Lastly then, he, he appears to, to James, uh, the rest of the apostles. And then, and then finally he appeals, uh, appears to, to Paul as well. Um, and so it's a historical. He's not just appealing to their faith, but he's also repeal, uh, appealing to the reality um, of the situation. He's like... He appeared to well over 500 people. Some of these people have died, but some of these people are still alive. You can go and ask them for yourselves. And so Paul is appealing to Jesus being um, our true hope. And so we said at the beginning, a, a hope for it to be true, it must answer all of the deepest um, problems of our life. And the problem that is most uh, evident and most uh, final as far as our time here on this earth is the question of death. And so how does Jesus as our true hope answer that question? Answer the question of death. Um, look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith... Your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Wow. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. Wow, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Paul is, is saying, listen, if, if the resurrection isn't true, then we've preached in vain. Uh, this whole idea of Christianity, your faith is in vain. Um, we are still in our sins. We're still under the judgment and wrath of God uh, in, in, this, in this way. Um, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then... If, if, if our only hope in Jesus is the life that he lived on this earth and being a good person and following him then he's like, we are, of all people, the most to be pitied. If the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity and just trying to be a good moral person because Jesus was a good teacher, uh, we're just going to follow the way of Jesus to, to try to be better people. He's like, you should be the most pitied people on earth. It's the, it's the death and resurrection. It's because Jesus has defeated death that gives us the hope that we actually need. If Jesus doesn't rise from the grave then death itself isn't overcome. Then we have no hope of our resurrection. Then death has the final answer. We have to come to terms with death. 
Um, again, this pandemic is making that um, ever present. We keep hearing the numbers of people that have died, people that have died over and over from each country every day, updates on the amount of deaths. But the reality is, um, as tragic as this is, and it is tragic, and we should be doing everything we can to stop it, um, we die every day. People are, are continuing to die of other reasons besides coronavirus. Once we have figured out vaccines and immunity and all these sorts of things, death still comes for all of us. And often we have different ways of trying to deal with that, don't we? Um, there's kind of three ways that I think uh, that you can categorize this in, in many ways, that people have to try to come to terms with death. One is we often just try to deny it, don't we? We ignore it. We don't like talking about it. Um, we just kind of put it out of our mind. We just try to get on with, with our day as best we can and try not to think about the day where eventually we'll have to face our own mortality. The second thing we do is try to battle it. We acknowledge death, but we want to try to ward it off as best we can through diets or surgery. We want to cling to our youth at all costs. Um, and, and eventually that gets kind of embarrassing, doesn't it? There's nothing like watching you know, a 50, 60, 70 year old trying to act like they're still in their 20s. Um, it just isn't, it's just kind of weird. That's something I've had to come to terms with uh, as a middle-aged man myself. There's eventually a few things you just have to kind of act your age. Um, the third thing a, a, a lot of times we do is just embrace it. We want to embrace death, but in a psychologically twisted kind of way. We turn death into something um, that it really isn't. We try to talk about death uh, being beautiful or death being a friend that leads us into um, some kind of um, nirvana or something like that. But that's not how the scripture um, reveals death to us. Death is an enemy. Um, death is, is like a, a, a crouching tiger waiting, waiting to pounce and devour us. Um, Satan brings death near to us. Death was never meant to be. And eventually death will be eradicated once and for all. We were the ones who brought death into the world by our sinful rebellion against God. Um, back in the Garden of Eden. Again, we've mentioned this, haven't we? In verse 21 and verse 23, uh, uh, Paul appeals to this as well, right? He, he explains this. For as by a man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. So one man, that is Adam, as he'll explain, brought death into the world. Then, then one man, Christ, came to overcome that. Um, for, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is all who receive the good news of, of Jesus. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Um, even the Corinthians, as we see later on in the text, are trying to cope with death. They're trying to baptize on behalf of the dead. Um, they're trying to come to terms with what it actually means for our life to end on this earth. Um, and, and really to do that, we, again, there's, there's kind of three major explanations of death, right? Ways that we think about that. First is uh, the body and the soul just cease to exist. Um, it's just nihilistic. When we're done, that's it. We just kind of fade into um, the dust of the universe again. Um, how we got here, who knows? What happens afterwards, who knows? Life just kind of becomes this um, accidental experiment. And often the times that leads to hedonism, right? We see this in verse 32. In verse 32, just eat, drink, for tomorrow we're, we're going to die. So live your best life now. Um, do, do whatever you can to make yourself as happy and as comfortable as you can. Often that's at the expense of other people. And even if a person does strive to live a morally upright life, they really have no basis for that morality. What do you appeal to? Um, in that way. 
Um, why should I care for other people if this life is all there is? If this is all there is, um, I'm going to just make my life as comfortable as I can. It's survival of the fittest because when this life's over, that's it. The second way we can approach death or explain death is that the body ceases to exist, but our soul lives on um, somehow. This is a dualistic way of thinking, a mysticism kind of way. Uh, this is how the Gnostics thought in the Old Testament, in, in, in Greek, even at this time, uh, that the body somehow was evil. Um, the body is what kind of trapped our spiritual soul. And so the body was, uh, was thought of as less than. Um, it was evil. The soul, was, which uh, our spirit is what was to be uh, admired. It, it is what is, is, was good. And so when you, you die, your body ceases to exist, but your soul continues to live on. Uh, it might reincarnate in a different kind of being. Um, but basically, this is escapism. It just ignores our physical world. Um, even Christians can be tempted to think this way, right? We think about are the spiritual as most important. Um, and that the body or our physical doesn't really matter. And so we tend not to, to think about our bodies as much or the environment and uh, taking care of the creation that God has, has, has given us uh, to actually take care of. We can have Gnostic thinking that kind of creeps into uh, even a Christian way of thinking. And then there's a third way, and this is, I think, the way the scripture uh, uh, demands we think about uh, the afterlife as well. And that is that both body and soul will continue by way of resurrection. And so our physical bodies die now. Yes, they get put into a, a box and we put it in the earth. Um, but we're told that at the second coming of Christ, when Christ comes again, we will um, experience a resurrection, that God will resurrect our bodies. Um, and you're like, how do, how do you resurrect a body that's decayed or cremated uh, in that way? Um, but this is exactly what the God of the universe does, who speaks the world into being, who creates by his will, also recreates and materializes us. Because it's, it's, it's not just uh, the body that we had. It's a, it's a new body. It's, it's a body that is us. People were able to recognize Jesus for who he was after the resurrection. And yet, it's a glorified body. It's a body without any of the uh, effects of, of sin on this. Um, and this is what the scriptures present to us. But there's no reason to believe this. There's no reason to believe that the scriptures are true unless death has been defeated, unless death has been overcome. Um, and this is what Paul is appealing to. He says, if the resurrection hasn't happened, then all of this is in vain. Your faith is still in vain. Um, death has the final word. You're still in your sins. Um, but he says, but that, that isn't the case. Indeed, Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Um, he's the only person. Um, he, he is, he's the only person that was qualified to die for our sins and is the one person uh, that all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament um, really centers on, his death and resurrection. Jesus, the God-man, um, he is the, the one who, who did that first. He was the first to defeat death, to go through the power of, of resurrection. And so he is then our hope. We see this in, again in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. And so because Jesus has come, um, because he has died in our place for our sins, and because he, he uh, went through death and has, has defeated death, then it says he is our first fruit. So um, verse 23 Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
And so while Jesus was the first uh, to be resurrected, he certainly uh, won't be the last. Um, and he wasn't, he wasn't the last even during his time on earth. You see uh, Lazarus and, and other uh, people in the, old, in, the, in the New Testament experiencing this as well. Um, but, but he's called the first fruits. First fruits are a sign that the harvest will be good. It's what farmers look to, those first fruits, those first signs of a harvest that are coming. Jesus says the first fruits of the resurrection, but he's not the whole harvest. Those who are in Christ, it says, those who belong to Christ at his coming. The reality is that Jesus has promised he would return. He will come again. And the reason for his delay between um, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his second coming is that he is giving us time. He is giving us, he's giving you time. He's giving us time to respond to the good news because those who will experience the resurrection, um, who, who will be part of that latter harvest are those who belong to Christ. It's not everyone. It's those who have received the good news of his resurrection. Those who've received and understood my way apart from God is essentially me trying to put my hope in, in all of these other things, whether that be other people, relationships, if I can just secure love, um, if I can have kids, if, if I can raise my kids in such a way that, that show uh, who I am and I can vicariously do that, that, that will provide hope for me. That'll provide uh, what I'm looking for. If I could just uh, have enough security in my life, if I can just have a, enough comfort in my life, enough finances in my life, if I have enough people around me and my hope is in the affirmation of those people to affirm me, um, I, I, that's good enough. If I can get enough likes, if I can get enough followers, if I can be influential enough, whatever it may be, we live our whole life chasing after objects to put our hope in. And at the very end, death erases all of it. That's the bad news. And if that's all there is, then Paul says, we should just eat, we should just drink, for tomorrow we die and we are to be most pitied. Most pitied. But the good news is that's not how the story ends. Paul wants them to remember. He wants to remind them of the gospel because it's of first importance. It's in which we stand. It's in which we are being saved. And so we all have this opportunity of hope for us to realize that that kind of a life pursued apart from God um, just leads to death eventually, and that's it. Um, Jesus comes and he offers life, not just life in the afterlife, uh, but a life full, a life to the full. Now, not because he, he removes us from difficult times, but he brings us through those difficult times with a hope. Um, just uh, this morning, I uh, was chatting um, I don't think she'll mind me saying Rachel um, uh, uh, in, in our own congregation in South who lost her mom recently and just saying um, she eventually had, a, a, there was a lifting of that burden um, with her full hope resting in Jesus again. How else do you go through a grieving process? Um, again, just uh, yesterday as well, speaking to a friend who lives in California who had to travel halfway across America to Kansas City to see her father uh, who has uh, dementia uh, who, and, and she said is probably more than likely the last time that she would see her dad alive. Um, but she doesn't grieve with hope. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, those who are in Christ, we don't grieve as those without hope. There's two kinds of people in the world those trying to find hope and those who have been assured of their hope so that even when we grieve, 
even when we experience death, it doesn't have the last word. There isn't a sting of death that lasts. We'll look at more of that next week as Andrew finishes off the chapter uh, on Easter Sunday for us. Jesus' resurrection is only the beginning. In Adam, we inherit the first fruits of sin and death. Um, but Jesus offers us a different story. The chance to inherit the first fruits of resurrection and of life. Look where all this leads in verse 24. He says, once that happens, when he returns, um, uh, his second coming, resurrection of those who belong in Christ, and then verse 24, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death itself is the enemy, and it will be destroyed. It will be the final enemy destroyed. Why? For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, under the feet of Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjected under him. That is God the Father. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjected under him. Why? That God may be all in all. Jesus destroys every rule, every authority, every power, every system associated with death, with sin, decay, and he establishes a new or a renewed creation. I want us to think about that. Um, I don't know how you received hearing that passage. You think, wow, that sounds a bit heavy-handed. This Jesus guy comes in. Uh, all these kind of powers and authorities and systems and everything subjected under his feet. Um, I don't know that that sounds like good news. Um, but if that's the case, if that's how you've heard that this morning, let me just say this is the best news you've ever heard because Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a different kind of ruler. The, the things that he is bringing under subjection to himself, the things that he is destroying are the things that you and I want destroyed. Imagine an economic system without any kind of sin in it, without any kind of greed, um, without, with, without any kind of uh, uh, people benefiting at the expense of other people. Imagine agriculture without pestilence, um, with a climate that is perfect. Imagine art, um, pure unadulterated art with any kind of um, sinfulness attached to it at all. Our own planet, our own creation, um, without any kind of pollution, um, without any kind of, of decay, without any kind of all of the ways that, that we as sinful human beings um, destroy and take advantage of it. Imagine our relationships. Imagine never having to forgive someone again because we don't sin against each other. Imagine your own body without the effects of sin and death. Um, I don't know what we'll all look like in heaven. Um, I, I think our standard of beauty might be skewed here on earth, but here's what I know. We'll all have a body without any effects of disease, of decay, of death. We'll all be perfectly healthy. And our soul. Um, a soul. A soul that is free from anxiety, free from worry, free from all of the things that, um, uh, th that we try to place our hope in that, that fail us over and over again. A soul that is wonderfully known and knows God as he knows us. Um, a life in that kind of world. So when Jesus comes and says, I'm bringing everything under subjection to myself, he's not coming as an oppressive ruler. He's not coming as a dictator. He's coming as the King of kings and Lord of lords to make everything right again, to undo the curse of sin, to undo the curse of death, 
to banish uh, uh, Satan and all of his, his demons forever. And he says, all of this then is presented to God the Father by God the Son. Why? So that God may be all in all. Man, that is glorious good news. And it's a hope that we can look to, a future hope that is secure in Christ for those of us that are in Christ. If the resurrection isn't true, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, um, if he was just a historical figure, a teacher that came, uh, did some good stuff, and then he died, and, and that was it, just like everybody else. Take that to its logical conclusion. The conclusion that, that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians we end up with a profound lack of future hope. Our life can be destroyed at any moment. It can be taken away at any moment. Which is why then Paul says, no, to die in Christ is actually gain. We actually gain. It's not loss. No resurrection. On what, uh, then on, on what basis does our life ever have any meaning beyond this moment if there's no resurrection? The resurrection, our future hope, fills these current moments that we live our life with all kinds of meaning. Without a resurrection, we play a never-ending game of self-preservation. We're unwilling to give ourselves away completely to something greater than ourselves. Because this life is all there is, we have to preserve it. And ironically, then, we want everything to give us hope, but then everything is a threat to take that hope away. We live in this anxious um, kind of uh, existence all the time of wanting to place our hope, but knowing that the very things that we place our hope in um, are the things that could take our hope away. But if the resurrection is true, um, someone said it this way, a resurrection means endless hope. No resurrection means a hopeless end. No matter what we face here on earth, if the resurrection is true, they aren't determinative, determinative to us. Our circumstances, um, our sufferings, the uncertainty that we find ourselves in, whether that be pandemics or anything else, they're not determinative uh, to our eternity because it's not all that there is. Pandemics don't have the final say. Broken economic systems don't have the, the final say. Flawed political systems don't have the final say. Our broken relationships don't have the final say. You being laid off and losing a job doesn't have the final say. You contracting a disease and dying doesn't have the final say. Actually, it's the opposite. Our suffering actually gets filled with meaning. Often in the scriptures, um, suffering becomes an... Uh, what we would call an inconvenient grace or a severe mercy. It's God exposing our misplaced hope. It's God calling us back to him. It's an opportunity for us to recalibrate our lives, to think about deeply um, what matters and where our hope is actually found. It's God gaining, uh, uh, trying to gain our attention once again, calling us back to his grace and his mercy. This is what Paul says, isn't it, in verse 34 as we end. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. Don't go on sinning. Wake up from our drunken kind of haze, he says. Don't go on sinning. Sin, essentially we've defined it as we've gone through here, but he says uh, sin is really just living our life apart from God. It's not recognizing God as creator of the universe. It's not recognizing that we have rebelled against him. It's, it's doing God, uh, doing our life apart from God. Instead, 
um, we turn from that life, we place our hope and our trust, and we follow um, God into a full life in this life and a full life in a resurrected life, uh, a resurrection after death. In a world of hopelessness, Jesus is offering endless hope, eternal hope, and it's found in him. It's those who belong to Christ. And all of this is proven by his death, satisfying the, resurrect, uh, the, the righteous requirements of God for humanity's sin, and his resurrection as a proof his death was sufficient, defeating death, defeating death once and for all, that we might receive eternal life to all who will believe and receive. Verse 1, it's what we've received and so for those of you that have received um, Jesus, that you are a Christian, may this morning be a reminder again on this Palm Sunday uh, as we enter into Holy, into Holy Week, moving towards Easter, that this would be uh, a week that we would once again um, think about uh, the, re- the, re- the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just in a religious kind of way, but in a foundational, existential way that this is, this is the thing that we are placing our hope in, this thing that we have received. This is the thing in which we will stand. This is the thing that validates our faith, that makes us not pitiable, um, but uh, uh, unshakable, even in the midst of pandemics. It's this by which we will have an unanxious presence. This is the answer to our anxiety. Um, this is the answer to our boredom. This is the, anxi- the answer to our worry. This is the uh, answer to our uncertainty in these times. Um, If you're listening this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, um, this is a gift that's extended to you as well, that you can actually have this hope, um, that you can have an unshakable foundation on which to stand, that you can have a secure future this morning. Um, And Jesus offers that to us uh, very simply by just receiving all of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf, the good news of the gospel. Admitting, one, that we have sinned, that we are living a life apart from God. Admitting uh, that, asking um, God to forgive us on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. The basis of Jesus' life, living a sinless life. His death, paying the penalty for our sin. And the proof of, 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 of the forgiveness and the power of death being overcome in the resurrection. And then we follow, follow his ways as taught through the scripture. We enter into a life of community in the church. Uh, and that life in the present, before our physical death here, is a life of flourishing, a life of hope, um, because death doesn't have the final answer. Um, if you want to know more about that, um, let me encourage you to maybe talk to a friend that's invited you to, to watch this this morning. Um, or you can, uh, I'd be happy to talk to you uh, as well. Um, you can just send us an email at info at villagebelfast.com. Just say, listen, I listened to the live stream. I'd love to, to talk to somebody more about what it means to, to follow Jesus. And we would love to, to give you a call or uh, a video conference, whatever it is that, that we need to do to, to follow up with you on that. Um, let me pray for us this morning. Father, um, we thank you that we can have this hope in Christ um, in a time where um, our world is searching for hope, where we ourselves are are often forgetting where our hope is. Uh, we thank you this morning for an opportunity to recalibrate our hope once again, um, to not look to things that will fail us, to receive those things as good gifts from you, um, our, our family, our finances, um, the, the goodness that we have in Christ, uh, that, you, that we can receive all those things with gladness as a gift. But those things are not our ultimate hope. And so, Father, we pray this morning 
uh, that we would believe, that we would have faith once again, that our faith isn't just in vain, um, that, is, that it is in, in Christ. And Father, for those that might not know you this morning, I just pray uh, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they would find that hope, um, that they would put their faith and their trust and hope in you and not in all the various ways that we seek to do that uh, on our own. And Father, would you give us that by your spirit this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen.